Welcome to our webinar today. Thank you so much for being here. In particular, as the topic of this webinar might seem like a rather niche one, but it is a topic that we feel has a potentially vast impact on our efforts to address climate change and its adverse impacts. I'm Charlene Watson. I'm a senior research associate and I sit within the climate and sustainability team at ODI and I'll be kicking us off uh, today. The objective of our webinar today will be to come together and offer thoughts on how we can really progress the third long-term goal of the Paris Agreement, and that is making finance flows consistent with low emission climate resilient development pathways. And this is all with a view to achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement, as well as the objectives of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So today we'll hear from a number of speakers and we hope for a lively question and answer session we really look forward to your ongoing engagement in tracking climate consistent finance flows in the coming year. Just before I dig in, I wanted to, to cover a couple of housekeeping notes. The session is being recorded and we will post a recording of the event uh, after it's happened so that others that couldn't join us today will be able to view this and view the presentations. We would like you to submit your questions. We have a couple of question and answer sessions throughout the webinar today. So please do submit your questions through the function on Zoom. Uh, and please do submit as early as you can so we can have a look at those questions and make sure we can pick them up in our short question and answer sessions today. So before we go into these panel discussions, I'm going to just take a few minutes to set the scene on the third long term goal of the Paris Agreement and the focus of our webinar today, really trying to explain why it's important to us. And I think it's worth starting with a recognition that we're facing multiple crises right now around the world. We do have a global energy crisis. We are still facing an ongoing global pandemic and a lot of governments are facing urgent fiscal and financial pressures. There's sovereign indebtedness that's rising. Governments, private actors, households are facing higher interest rates and a lot of households are facing cost of living crises. And all of this comes on top of the climate crises for which we know that current action has been identified as too weak and too slow. But many of us will also know that these crises are interconnected as well as compounding. So we feel that while ramping up of spending and investment in climate action is challenging in the face of the poly crises, coupled with a ramping down and shifting of spending away from high emitting actions does remain the best option for long-term economic growth, development, macroeconomic, fiscal stability when it's implemented with climate justice front and center. So the third long-term goal of the Paris Agreement, which is our International Climate Change Treaty set in 2015, does remain central to success for both limiting global temperature rise and increasing our ability to adapt to climate change. And these are the first two long-term goals, mitigation and adaptation. So the third long-term goal that's referred to also as Article 2, Paragraph 1C of the Paris Agreement aims to strengthen a global response to the threat of climate change in the context of sustainable development and efforts to eradicate poverty, including by making finance flows consistent with a pathway towards low greenhouse gas emissions and climate resilient development. And this third long-term goal broke new ground back in 2015. It recognized the full effort when it came to financing climate action. And the estimates of finance that need to be mobilized are over two trillion a year by 2030 which means that all finance levers, rules, regulations, policies, other incentives should all drive towards climate action. And the third long-term goal also recognized that a sole focus on the positive climate finance flows will be insufficient to meet the overarching objectives of the Paris Agreement. 
So since the Paris Agreement was designed in 2015, an estimated $4 trillion have gone into fossil fuel financing, for example, from the world's biggest banks. Making finance flows climate consistent, however, is a complex process. Country governments are decision makers, incentive setters, shareholders, they regulate, they govern financial institutions. They also have to serve many development, economic growth and stability objectives. So making finance flows climate consistent will need to allow for differing country contexts and be country driven, also in the intended spirit of the Paris Agreement. But this nationally driven element should not mean that we can't track progress towards Article 21C, given its importance in achieving the overall objectives of the Paris Agreement and the Climate Change Convention. In fact, the first global stock take, which is a UNFCCC process that will look at collective progress towards the Paris Agreement's long-term goals every five years, and so is inclusive of Article 21C, will be concluded this year in Dubai at COP. So in the spirit of helping countries take ownership and determine how to finance their own low emission climate resilience development pathways, in 2018, ODI with some other partners, Rocky Mountains Institute, E3G and the World Resources Institute, tried to support with developing a loose framework around which actions being taken towards Article 21C could be reported. It focused on groupings of well understood government levers shifting public and private finance. These are financial policy and regulation, which often influence laws, fiscal policy levers that often influence prices, public finance that can make direct investments and information instruments that can guide flows. Others have also made efforts to track how finance flows to climate action are becoming climate consistent. And the Standing Committee on Finance has reflected much of this work and has been mapping these efforts in its 2022 reports that were launched at COP in Egypt. Discussions in 2023 are likely to ramp up on this topic in the UNFCCC. The Sharm el-Sheikh implementation plan coming out of COP27 has set the stage for two workshops on Article 21C this year. And these will be to exchange views on and enhance the understanding of the scope of 21C and its complementarity with the mobilization and provision of climate finance as articulated in Article 9. The cover text went further, noting that a transformation of the financial system, its structures and processes are also needed to deliver the scale and urgency of the climate finance we need. So therefore, it seems an opportune moment to learn and to share ideas from current initiatives that seek to progress climate consistent finance flows. So right now, I would like to hand over to Joseph Fairtag on our team, who will take us into the next session. Thank you, Charlene. Um, just, just checking that um, uh, Annette, Annette is not able to join us. Just posted in the chat. Yeah, I think she, she is in the, in the room, but uh, was not able to join the presenters there. Okay, thank you. Now we'll just um, we'll just crack on then, and then we'll we'll hopefully get back to Annette. At um, uh, we're just having some technical issues that our AV team is working on, but I'll um, I'll move on to the first panel then, and then we'll return to Annette um, afterwards. So uh, thank you very much, Charlene. My name is Joseph Fartog. I'm a research fellow uh, in ODI's climate and sustainability team. Um, I've got the pleasure of introducing the first panel. Um, and that's on country level perspectives uh, on the challenges and opportunities of operationalizing Article 2.1c. All three panelists that we've got have got first-hand experience of operationalizing just this, um, as they authored 
uh, case studies that applied the 21C framework at national level in Germany, Rwanda, and Antigua. Uh, and these case studies, along with additional reports for Colombia, Indonesia, and Switzerland, uh, and soon Samoa, are available on the IGST uh, website, which I'll post a link of in a, in a minute. Um, our first panelist is David Reifisch. Uh, David is team leader on international climate policy at German Watch in Bonn. Uh, prior to joining German Watch, David worked on climate finance for GIZ, for UNEP and the Inter-American Development Bank. Uh, and, and David and his colleagues completed an incredibly uh, rigorous and impressive assessment of the Paris alignment to finance flows, not only in Germany, but uh, in the EU as well. Um, we then change context a bit and move on to June Sammer, who's currently based in Nairobi. June is a manager and market systems development specialist at the Millennium Water Alliance. Um, she was lead author of an excellent assessment of Rwanda's finance flows and will provide insights on how to operationalize 21C in uh, an emerging market context. And then finally, we'll hear from uh, the lead author of the Antigua case study, Mikai Robertson. Mikai is currently lead negotiator on climate finance to AOSIS, the Alliance of Small Land States, where he was a major force behind uh, one of the big successes of uh, last year's COP which of course was the loss and damage fund. Uh, he's also a research associate uh, at ODI. Uh, so I really hope that you enjoy hearing from these excellent panelists and their insights. Uh, over to you, David. Um, thank you very much, Joseph, uh, for having me and please uh, bear with me. I've caught a bit of a cold, but I think uh, I'll, I'll manage to run through the, the Germany case. Um, yeah, so um, I want to give you some political background and then what are, what are our key findings and also obstacles to uh, to assessing the delivery of Article 21C in the German context. And uh, so Germany has, has decided that it wants to become like a leading location for sustainable finance. And uh, there are some positive uh, general things, some positive momentum. Um, for example, the current government uh, was the first legislature, first one to, to have a separate chapter on sustainable finance in its coalition treaty. Uh, we're also having, the government has an advisory council with participants from uh, uh, business, from think tanks, uh, civil society that is in place to advise the government on sustainable finance. And then of course, importantly, uh, Frankfurt as a as a real financial international financial hub hosting the European Central Bank and the and the uh, ISSB uh, the International Sustainability Standards Board. Uh, but Germany is also quite particular uh, in terms of the way the economy works and and we're very heavily industrialized and we have a lot of highly specialized uh, small and medium enterprises uh, that. Uh, that are world leaders in their specific segment, but they're also, so they're instrumental to transformation, but they're also uh, challenged by transformation. And that essentially translates also into their position on, on everything related to sustainable finance. We also have a very decentralized banking system uh, with corporate cooperative banks, public banks, and also private commercial banks. And as you said, we didn't just look in, into Germany, but the EU, because the reason is that a lot of the sustainable finance regulation is actually done on the EU level. So 
If you want to look at Germany and how it performs financial uh, indicators, you need to look um, uh, at the EU. And 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 I mean, on, also vice versa, Germany obviously exerts a lot of pressure on on Brussels decision. So, uh, what what information did we look at uh, in, in Germany? Uh, we looked at uh, various different uh, public level information, like levers in terms of strategies and targets, like the the twenty forty five climate neutrality goal, for example, um, because these goals obviously. Uh, are uh, essential also one to determine the pathway for the country but also because they give uh, investment signals uh, then we looked into financial policy and regulation um, and, and that as i said is predominantly determined on european level and um, and there's a lot going on but it's often not implemented yet then we looked at central banks and financial supervision it's both on european level but also national level fiscal policy and carbon pricing public budget, public financial institutions, because of the very important role that KFW and the European Investment Bank also play in, uh, in advancing the transformation through their, through their financing, uh, and then also in general investment planning and how it's climbed along. So there's a lot of public sector focus that we had, uh, but we also looked at the private sector with uh, bank lending uh, and mortgages, real estate, uh, bond markets, and, and equity. Um, and we learned a couple of things when we looked at these at these uh, parameters. And um, for many areas, it's actually still pretty difficult to say uh, whether it's aligned or not aligned. And, and there's there are various reasons for that. Um, one uh, it's is process wise. As I said, there's a lot of work underway, but it's not yet implemented. So uh, one could say, okay, yeah, it's heading in the right direction, but uh, but we couldn't say they are already aligned uh, with with Paris. Like, there's not Paris compatible yet because it's not implemented. Second, uh, we don't know for everything what the actual pathway is. So what's uh, bolded against uh, that works for some sectors, but not for all sectors. And then also, uh, uh, qualitative data was comparably. Uh, easier to find than the quantitative data of course that depends a lot on the on the area and the sector but uh, quantitative data there's still uh, still lots of room for improvement. Um, private sector investments in general were more uh, park and not really readily available in, in various areas and and there's definitely a gap to to generate that uh, knowledge and information and i think the whole disclosure uh, Hopefully, the whole disclosure regulation will help there. And then mitigation versus adaptation, very clearly uh, that, that there's still a gap in adaptation. And that might be due to the fact that um, for the longest time, Germany was very mitigation-focused, and that changed just recently since, uh, since we've felt the climate change impacts as well. Um, then going specifically into, into what we found is uh, that... Uh, Fiscal incentives remain very unaligned still, uh, very high fossil fuel subsidies um, that also did not help last year's, uh, the implication of the Russian war on Ukraine, um, even though there is a G7 commitment to end fiscal, uh, fossil fuel subsidies, um, there's still no systematic assessment of in how far our public budget is climate compatible. 
And there's some kind of review because of our green bonds, but no real tagging or uh, it's anti-climate compatibility planning. Uh, public finance institutions I mentioned, and uh, um, there, for example, we have the uh, we have on the one hand that Germany signed the Glasgow statement to end fossil fuels, uh, but we have not seen a uh, a German uh, version, the German criteria corresponding to the Glasgow statement, and uh, and there's still there's lots of concern with regard to gas and what will come forward. Um, and uh, in terms of um, regulatory policies um, that influence financial flows, we're still definitely not aligned with 1.5. And we have in Germany two sectors that we that we found and has been repeatedly um, shown is that that the transport and building sector are lagging behind. Um, yeah, as I said, on private, a significant information gaps exist. Uh, that is also due to the fact that obviously the 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 SMEs, the small and medium enterprises, are very important for the German context, but there are, there are significant data gaps in availability, which is in part uh, due to capacity constraints, knowledge, and also uh, the the initial cost um, that that is that is there to to uh, to raise these this information. Even though we know we have evidence that that turns around actually, and they, it is beneficial to raise these the data and the information, but it, it takes some time. Um, and, and we did all that trying to uh, combine desk research and like in, in our own knowledge and research to apply that. We took third party information and assessment to try to combine that all. To complete, um, if we look at HATS, um, Germany will definitely, uh, we will, the, the small medium enterprise will play a, a key, uh, it will be real crucial to Germany's alignment. Germany's position also on sustainable finance in processes on the European level uh, because of these worries of overburdening the companies. Uh, and, and that's very specific to Germany. Um, and uh, if we, if Germany really wants to be a, a leader in sustainable finance, um, there's, there's a lot of ground still to be more ambitious um, and to support that kind of ambitious regulation also on the, on the European level. One uh, last thing, access to finance is becoming actually a challenge. We're hearing that um, in uh, in Germany. So um, on the one hand, that means that banks are starting to apply, for example, the taxonomy, starting to uh, really look into what is green. But if we want to transform the, uh, the, the industry, the economy, it's important that the transformation relevant companies and the transformation relevant investments uh, will will also be financed, and so that speaks that we'll have the need uh, for still like a transformational or amber taxonomy. Um, I think I'll, I'll close here, but it, for Germany, it really comes down to making the regulation work and and uh, adjust and amend where necessary to make it personalized. Thank you. Great, thank you, David. Um, we were going to move on to the next panelist, but I think I've. We've now got the opportunity to introduce uh, Dr. Annette Windmeiser and add to that German perspective. Um, so just to briefly introduce Annette, um, she is Head of Division for Climate Finance at the Federal Ministry of Economic Cooperation and Development uh, in Germany, the BMZ, and she will now give her views on progress on developing Article 2 and see and what needs to happen to facilitate its implementation. Over to you, Annette. 
Thanks very much to everybody. Um, can you hear me okay now? Okay, great. Um, sorry for the technical um, snitch at the beginning and um, sort of coming in late, um, but it seems like it's actually quite a good seek to um, from David's um, input into what I'm um, what I'd like to contribute to this um, session. And thanks very much for inviting me. Um, I think it's hugely relevant and hugely timely. Gives us time to prepare for COP twenty eight and. Um, I mean, David really um, gave the insights of the um, study of um, the German financial system. And um, I, I think that's hugely relevant because it shows how much has been accomplished and how much has been done on a strategic and policy level. But he also very, very clearly delineated the um, challenges we're still facing on the implementation side and uh, data gaps we have. Um, and most crucially, probably, we, we still haven't got any lessons learned. We still haven't put good practices um, in place um, that we can then um, uh, carry on and um, um, further into other um, um, uh, scenarios. And I think that's really where the BMZ might come in, um, because we, um, we're obviously talking to um, the DFIs, we're talking to the World Bank, et cetera, about alignment, Paris alignment with 21C. Um, we're talking to the OECD um, 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 about um, further gathering data, um, data gaps that need to be filled and how to fill them, doing further studies on these um, things. And, um, um, but really, I mean, we're already on a, on a very solid foundation in um, a couple of arenas um, where the beam set is um, working in. For example, just to give you a couple of um, examples from our portfolio, um, we have a very, very interesting work on greening the finances, um, on greening financial systems, um, and also on um, um, uh, national politic level, um, on national um, uh, private policy level, um, for example, from Vietnam, um, where we try to give TA um, to actually change um, uh, fiscal policies, um, or from Brazil, where we're working with the um, central bank um, to actually change the taxonomy. And um, I think those are very, very encouraging um, examples, but they also show um, to what extent this actually needs to um, move further in, in order to reach a sort of positive tipping point where we actually have some crucial structural um, systematic change that is convincing to other investors, to other um, colleagues out there in the partner countries. And, um, so what we're trying to do is um, to actually create some examples like through strategic climate partnerships to um, CHEP, so just energy transition partnerships, to make some really big um, demonstrative examples um, that are convincing for, for others out there. But this is, as you all know, this is politically risky. It's financially risky, it's economically risky, but foremost, it's for the countries politically risky, but it's also for the donors politically risky to actually engage in something like that. And so we're also not just in this sort of bilateral, multilateral um, um, uh, cooperation, we need progress. But we also need it on the global um, field. We need it in the in the COPs, and um, there, I feel that um, rejecting the agenda item, um, uh, sort of a dedicated agenda item, COP twenty seven, was really unfortunate. Um, it sort of threw us back, um, and um, it's a setback. Um, we are trying to now. Um, um, Sort of Ghana again uh, through the Shamu Sheikh um, dialogue on um, to to one C, 
and um, further develop a common understanding. But this seems to be difficult. And, um, and I do get the concerns of partner countries when partner countries fear that um, we might um, shy away from our obligations. And I mean, from, from for um, my ministry for Germany, I can say that um, we don't shy away from obligations. Um, we are very much aware of um, uh, what needs to be done financially, um, that we need to raise um, the um, commitments and obligations financially, and we're preparing for that. So we're, we're there. We also know that we need to talk to other um, donors. We need to talk to um, not only traditional donors, to others as well, um, to um, make everybody realize there's a commitment out there and we need to honor the commitment. Um, but at the same time, we all, everybody of us, we all know that um, the finances that are required are much, much higher than um, what you can gain just from public um, finances, public climate finance. So we actually need to um, move on with um, 2-1-C. We need to um, uh, um, start implementing 2-1-C much more strenuously, much more um, strategically than what we've done so far. And providing examples for that, providing um, good framework for that, um, that's what we're trying to do here at the BMZ. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Annette. Um, very interesting perspectives. We will now move on to June. Over to you, June. All right, and thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm very happy that David went before me because I resonate with quite a lot of what he said, but the context is different, but interestingly enough, similar. So um, I was one of the authors for the Rwanda case study where we were looking at whether we can make uh, financial flows consistent or climate consistent. And um, some of the activities that we carried out in order to gather the data just involved a lot of desktop research. And then of course we supplemented this with interviews with various sector players. So uh, for the desktop research, uh, one of the most challenging things was just generally finding the data. Um, it was difficult to find documentation and I do resonate with what David said, particularly um, quantitative documentation that was very difficult to find in how much in terms of how much has been allocated in the public sector and in the private sector. So of course we then proceeded to go and conduct a couple of informant interviews with various government entities, various private sector institutions um, and um, in some instances um, it was good, it was easy to get the information, in some it was a bit challenging, there was a lot of bureaucracy, but at the end of the day we got some robust data. So just to give you a bit of context um, for Rwanda, uh, Rwanda is a very uh, progressive African country, and I think that's probably why it was chosen for this case study. So before COVID, it witnessed quite a lot of um, growth, 7% of GDP annually for the, the two decades preceding COVID, and it was doing really well. Of course, it got hit by COVID. And um, in comparison to its peers in terms of uh, climate change, it was quite progressive. So it released a very ambitious uh, nationally determined contribution. It was the first sub-Saharan African country to do so in 2021, which of course set it apart from its peers. Then in 2012, it was the first sub-Saharan African country to develop a green fund known as Ponerwa. So that enabled them to you know, be ahead of everyone else in terms of marshalling climate finance, securing this finance from the developed world. So with that in mind, um, I think Rwanda is quite progressive, even more so than my own country of Kenya, and we look to, to them for some of the things that they do. 
So my discussion will mainly focus on some of the opportunities that presented themselves in the case for Rwanda to actually align its, its financial flows and some of the challenges that the country is actually facing. So one of the key opportunities that I think is there for Rwanda as a country is the fact that it just has systems that work better than most systems in other sub-Saharan African countries. So it's organized. Um, and the fact that it has the green fund known as Ponaira. So what Ponaira does is that it brings, it leverages uh, climate finance. It draws climate finance from the developed entities. And um, it also draws domestic um, finance so that this can be directed towards um, climate activities. And this is very important, especially for other sub-Saharan African countries that don't have this fund, because this fund could be, um, could be the place where people anchor efforts to align some of these financial flows. Um, so them having that presents an opportunity to move faster in terms of aligning some of these financial flows. Then another opportunity that we witnessed is the fact that um, Rwanda is very progressive in terms of its policy. So it has a guiding and cornerstone policy that enables it to um, make the alignment of financial flows easier. So just to give you a bit of context, in 2011, they developed the Rwanda Green Growth and Climate Resilience Strategy. That's very early. Uh, Kenya's came about in 2016 after a lot of push and pull. So the fact that it had done that enabled um, climate change to be mainstreamed across a number of sectors. Maybe there wasn't too much implementation, but there was a lot of awareness creation about the need to direct financing what some of these climate activities look like because of that particular strategy. Then um, in 2019, they developed the National Environment and Climate Change Policy, which was a bit more prescriptive on what exactly needs to be done. So in this policy, they talked about how budgeting in each and every sector needs to actually have climate tagging and direct financing to climate-related activities so that they could monitor how public spending on climate finance was going. So that I think is very progressive. And I feel like in developing countries that don't have these kind of policies, this could be a very good way of jumpstarting the alignment of financial flows. So that for me was a good opportunity. Then um, it also is receiving substantive uh, support from various entities. So if you remember in Glasgow in COP2026, it was uh, selected as a pilot country for understanding how to improve and develop new approaches for accessing climate finance. So the fact that it's a hub um, for this kind of activity makes it very easy for them to actually develop mechanisms to align their public flows and their private flows um, in a climate-friendly manner. Then also um, the fact that it is also being supported by an entity called the NDC Partnership and the World Bank that it can implement its NDC. So the fact that it has significant support from donors and it has been earmarked or recognized as a progressive country makes it, um, makes it easier for Rwanda. This may not be the case in all developing countries, um, but I know that for the past two, developing the policy and having good governance frameworks would definitely enable us to start uh, doing that. Then another very interesting opportunity was the policy and regulatory framework. So again, in this point, I do resonate with uh, David. It's interesting that Rwanda has policy frameworks that are working, but they haven't entirely been implemented. And so then when the case study was being developed, quite a number of the policy frameworks were highlighted in orange, which means that progress is not moving in the right direction. But the thing is that they're there. So I think it's just initiating the development. So to exemplify a few, um, we have the National Housing Policy, for instance, which talks about developing energy efficient building standards. Um, and then we also have the National Energy Policy, which advocates for increasing the share of renewable energies in the energy mix 
And of course, then once this policy is in place, it then determines how finance moves towards more renewable energies. Then we also have the National Strategy for Transformation, uh, which runs until 2024, which talks about reducing biomass usage from cooking. So of course, then finance also moves in alignment with that policy. Then also the country has very progressive fiscal policies, I must say. So the two very interesting ones were the national energy policy and also um, a strategic paper on electric mobility. So I was just bouncing off ideas with friends about the situation in Kenya um, and the fact that getting an electric vehicle in this country is extremely expensive. And so that, of course, discourages people from purchasing it. But in Rwanda, there are fiscal incentives where um, you know, they reduce electrical vehicle tariffs during off-peak times. They have exemptions on import and excise duties. Then they're trying to phase out internal combustion engines. Of course, we have to understand that there's a lot to be done in terms of the infrastructure for electric vehicles. But the fact that they are allowing people to think around these fiscal incentives is very, very encouraging. Then for the national energy policy, they also have various tax incentives um, like uh, VAT and import duty exemptions for selected solar standalone systems. So that was um, quite a good opportunity. And I think um, other developing nations and even developed nations should look towards these particular fiscal policies as levers to align finance. Then um, uh, the last opportunity that was very evident is the fact that they're really trying to grow their private sector. So I'll talk about this as a challenge. The private sector is very underdeveloped. And of course, then you can't marshal the flows required from the private sector for climate resilience. Um, but what they've done is that they have five institutions which are working to grow this. So you have the Rwanda Development Board, which was established in 2008, particularly just to attract foreign direct investment and to attract private sector investment. So the good thing is that you have this one body which is trying to attract private sector investment, and then you can actually tweak that body to find a way to align private flows, and you can even get data from that body. So I thought that was very good of them. I've talked about FONERA, the Green Fund, which not only harnesses domestic and uh, international finance, but also looks at private finance. Then we have the Development Bank of Rwanda. So the Development Bank of Rwanda um, tends to de-risk um, any private sector entities. And a specific example is that they're providing commercial financing for private sector entities working in renewables, which then makes it easy for private sector finance to align to renewables um, in the energy sector. Then finally, we have uh, the Rwanda Finance Limited. So Rwanda is extremely ambitious and I appreciate this. So they're trying to form the Kigali International Finance uh, Center, which will be a financial hub. There are not very many of those in Sub-Saharan Africa. So Kigali will be the preferred financial center for holding companies, fund management companies, private foundations, um, international banks, all looking to operate in Sub-Saharan Africa. And the fact that they have this hub can really determine how, um, you know, they can guide how these private entities um, utilize their finance. And it's a very good initiative on their part. So for some of the challenges, some, one of the biggest challenges for me was um, the dichotomy of aligning the flows and pursuing poverty alleviation and development is that consistent tug of war. So some of the poverty alleviating measures in Rwanda and in other sub-Saharan African countries are not climate, they have climate inconsistent views. So just to give an example, um, in Rwanda, they have this one cow per poor person um, initiative, which is really good because it moves some of the Rwandan citizens out of poverty. 
Um, but the problem is that it led to quite a lot of emission. And actually, the agricultural sector in Rwanda has the highest emission. It has the, contributes the highest to the emissions. That's 53% of the emissions in the country, largely because of the methane produced by the cows. But then now you ask yourself, we need to move people out of poverty, but you also need this um, you know, alignment of uh, financial flows. So how do we find a balance? And I think it's just in finding workable alternatives and, and that's what we need to think about. So that was definitely a challenge. Then another one, which I think um, David also mentioned, is the use of fossil fuel subsidies. Um, so the government actually uses $40 million annually, at least as at 2022, to provide fossil fuel sub subsidies for the energy and the transportation sector. Um, the same case is happening in Kenya. And actually in Kenya, they just removed them. And so I can tell you all that we are suffering in this country because um, we really relied on those subsidies. So you can imagine that um, how the cost of living is going up. And so then I think uh, Dr. Shaleen mentioned it. So we need to find a way to balance that dichotomy, particularly for all, most Sub-Saharan African countries face this. And then um, some of the development measures are climate inconsistent. So this is particularly in the agricultural sector and in the energy sector. Uh, when we were doing our research, we found out that Rwanda is very endowed with peat and methane. And so the government is trying to, you know, um, direct public finance to develop these sources of energy so that they can move people from biomass energy. This is a good thing, but also a bad thing, because at the end of the day, the emission, it's not climate um, consistent finance. So offering alternatives would be a very, very good way of ensuring that the flows are um, consistent with a climate resilient pathway. And I'd like to give an example of what happened with South Africa, um, though I know that there are teething problems. Um, so South Africa, of course, 80% of its energy and electricity comes from coal. Um, and in, 20, in COP26, they actually offered about $8.5 billion to start helping them transit away. So 2.1, I feel, is also aligned with Article 9, in, especially for developing countries. Like the developed world does have to help or offer alternatives for the developing countries to actually move away from these um, um, non-climate-friendly methods of energy generation because we are still pursuing economic growth. We do still want to develop, but then we need to have these alternatives so that our finances are aligned. Then um, the financial sector is quite underdeveloped. Um, there are shallow capital markets. The domestic bond and equity markets are not active or big enough. And, and this is a problem because um, there's not enough private financing coming from this financial sector. So let me give an example. We have 93.3% of private sector institutions being um, small and medium enterprises and not very strong small and medium enterprises. So you can't even harness finance from these small and medium enterprises. You can't even measure it. You can't even track it. So that's a problem. Um, and then another issue is just lack of information. So there are no disclosure requirements for ESG, for banks, for pension funds, for financial institutions. So then, of course, you don't know what's happening. You don't know what's happening with their flows. You can't track their flows. Very challenging. And then Rwanda doesn't have a green taxonomy. And, and I think quite a number of developing countries do not have a green taxonomy because it's expensive to develop. Um, South Africa is one of the first Sub-Saharan African countries that got their green taxonomy. So we're wondering, should we have a harmonized one for Sub-Saharan Africa? These are things to consider. And these are challenges that kind of prevent um, the alignment of financial flows. 
So I think those are the things that um, we recognized from the case and some of the opportunities and challenges, but Thank you. Thank you, June. Uh, really, really interesting. And, and I mean, some similarities, but also some differences to the Germany case study. So that's really good to, to hear. Uh, Mikai, over to you. Uh, thanks, Joe. Can you hear me clearly? Yeah. Okay, great. And um, good day to everyone. So I've been tasked with um, providing some perspectives from a small island developing state um, viewpoint. And and primarily, it I'll ta look at the challenges first, and then opportunities as it relates to two one C. Um, but it's both using the lessons from, as Joe mentioned, the case study that um, I worked on with with Charlene as well um, from Antigua and Barbuda's perspective. But there've been a lot of um, anecdotes and positions from SIDS that have, at least in my time as as, as coordinating SIDS on on finance, that that we've developed. Um, over the last two years. So I think more broadly, um, a lot of discussion we've had um, from the SIDS perspective, there's been a clear acknowledgement that, you know, the Article 9 financing focuses on climate financing, right? It's a means to end, it's to, to get us to, to respond to climate change. So, you know, there's hopefully a time-bound nature because at the end, we should solve climate change, right? However, the ends that we're looking at going towards is this sort of low emission, climate resilient global economy. So, so we do have to figure out um, how exactly we use these resources as best as possible to get us there. So using the Article 9 resources as a catalyst to make all of our countries um, more resilient as well as low emission um, development that is consistent and all of our financial flows to be consistent with that pathway. So one clear thing that we can understand as well more broadly that um, achieving the financial goals is, is more beneficial. Um, it's very beneficial to SIDS. Um, it's, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's a necessity for achieving as well our nationally determined contributions. And the reason why is because we've been discussing a lot of it, right, is that the, private, the public sector cannot transition um, the country to this type of economy in line with our NDCs by itself. So we do need the private sector on board to push us forward. Um, and so, and one thing I would highlight before I go into the challenges is that, um, and, and we can hear it in, you know, a lot of the case studies is that we don't necessarily give equal consideration to both sides of the development pathway. So, i.e., climate resilient development as well as low emission development. And I think that's going to be one of the themes that uh, I discuss further on. So just going quickly onto the challenges, because I know we're kind of strapped for time. Um, one thing was mentioned, I think Annette mentioned it, there's no institutional home, right? Um, for 21C in comparison to the other goals of the Paris Agreement. And, and when we saw that ripple out um, in the geopolitics of COP27, um, noting obviously the establishment of the dialogue, but I think we do need to have more of a, of a clear understanding of that institutional um, home for Article 21C. Uh, the next thing is that as a part of the reporting framework, the transparency framework of the Paris Agreement, 21C is nowhere a part of that, right? Um, that's a huge, huge um, um, gap um, in, in the broader sort of transparency architecture of the Paris Agreement. So we have an entire goal and there's no way for us to report on, on that. Uh, and that's something that we hope that can be course corrected um, going forward as countries, because this will obviously help not only SIDS, but everyone in general. 
Um, there's also, as I highlighted, the more the skewed focus towards low um, emission development um, as opposed to climate resilient pathways. And this is not only in the literature, but in the methodologies and even in the negotiations and the negotiation positions that we see from different countries. And as you can imagine, from a SIDS perspective, we really do want to see how do we get our financial flows in line with a climate resilient um, pathway. The next is, and, and we were as well kind of referring to it a bit, is that we lack harmonized information, uh, harmonized standard, harmonized methodology and reporting structure um, to, to track our progress towards um, the, the um, achievement of Article 21C, especially in the context of the global stock take. It's, it's the third leg of the global stock take and, and we really do not have any way of tracking um, in line um, with the transparency framework, uh, how, uh, how, how good are we co collectively going towards making our flows more consistent with this type of pathway? Um, and so we, we also need to highlight as well that asymmetric sort of application of 21C oriented financial policies and regulations globally, um, and how do we safeguard against entities evading you know, this type of regulation from one jurisdiction to the next, right? So if you have one jurisdiction that's very 21C aligned, and you have a company that doesn't want to, to interact with that framework, all they need to do is go to and set up at the next jurisdiction, right? Um, how, how are we safeguarding to ensure that, you know, we don't have that type of application when we're, when we're um, trying to push for a 2-1-C world? Um, second to last thing on challenges as well is the support for developing countries. And I know June highlighted that a bit. Um, and the support that we need specifically for enabling environment creation and reporting that's different from current traditional scope of readiness, right? That's only focusing on climate finance. Um, we, we don't have that currently sort of earmarked as well, especially for SIDS. Uh, and, the lack, and the last kind of main one is the lack of an internationally agreed uh, definition of climate finance, which we, we're working through with the geopolitics of it um, and ensuring that, that we understand where, where the clear lines of climate finance is to kind of counteract what, what Annette was saying in relation to the, the whole trust um, issue, right? Um, between between many different um, contributors and, and recipients of climate finance. Um, one kind of, I guess, deep dive in the context of um, SID specifically is that we have a fear, especially discussing with our ministries of finance, there's a, there's a fear that when you have 2-1-C sort of um, tools, like for example, climate risk disclosure, that a lot is focused on the disclosure part but um, and not enough is being focused on the opportunities part once you've disclosed the risk. So we fear that being having our investments and investments in particularly vulnerable countries like SIDS, where if you look at a, from a risk mapping perspective, you know, technically we'd all be in the red. What happens when a foreign company or foreign institution, the foreign bank says that this risk is high risk? Um, so, and, and there's no then next step after disclosure to, for example, manage the physical risk associated to the greatest extent possible, right? Um, in order for us not to have just a, a huge amount of stranded assets um, within our particularly vulnerable regions. So we don't want 2-1-C to, to then become, instead of a shield protecting the world, becoming the sword, right? Um, so, so we do need to figure out, you know, even things like the potential role of, of statutorily mandated transition plans, right? Um, after you've made the disclosure to ensure that we're not just um, picking up and running away um, from, from um, particularly vulnerable regions like SIDS and LDCs. So quickly onto opportunities, um, small island states are small countries. That means that they're small economies. 
So we're low-hanging fruit, really, to test these sort of um, approaches, 2-1-C approaches, on a more macro level um, to, uh, and a smaller level in order to, to branch out into, into bigger countries, right? And so looking at the, the ODI and um, other colleague framework, um, I guess the four general areas, right? You have, you have the financial policies um, and regulations and you know, monetary and prudential policies. And I think one thing from our experience about the opportunities there, and it's similar to June. So I think that W, um, um, what's that called? World Bank and the NDC partnership, they've been really pushing for this greening initiative because I know in the sub-region of the Eastern Caribbean, they also have a similar initiative to the one that June mentioned, um, where, where it's having a clear discussion on how do we, we leverage um, their regulatory sort of function um, in order to mainstream these, these principles of 2-1-C. Uh, and in our context, at least in Antigua and Barbuda, where we have a currency union um, of, of, of over eight states, um, it's, it's quite easier for us to sort of agree to changes, small tweaks in, in the Banking Act, right, in, in order to make sure that there's the, the requisite disclosures, et cetera, transition plans um, through these, um, these policies and regulations. So that's, that's the financial policies and regulations bit. Um, I think what's also most interesting is the fiscal policies as well. And even in discussions about things like public procurement uh, and bulk procurement, right? And, and using those, those basically those, those leverages um, and those, those, those tools um, to address things like high transaction costs for SIDS, right? Uh, we're remote, um, we're, we're small, we're small markets. And so getting things to us are a lot more expensive. Uh, but if we start to say, for example, bulk procure, EV energy um, um, e vehicles, electric vehicles, right? Um, or bulk procure shutters to protect us from hurricanes, right? And reduce that cost. Those fiscal policies then in turn assist us um, with, with making sure that our, our, all of our financial flows are more aligned, right? Because we have the goods at, at a better price and give that incentive for, for, for the green spending. Um, subsidies, we, we, we do see uh, subsidies are, are also good. Um, but our Ministry of Finance, especially in Antigua, are a bit worried about, for example, when we transition away from taxing fossil fuels, because we do receive a lot of revenues from taxing fossil fuels. How do you ensure that you have the revenue recovery after you've subsidized green, for example, technologies um, and, and green sort of infrastructure? Um, so making sure that you do have temporary subsidies in place to attract, but it then doesn't become permanent subsidies, right? Because we see that there's also disadvantages sometimes of subsidies that have huge lifespans. And so making sure that we have revenue recovery there. Um, the, on the third bit that deals with public finance and its catalytic role, um, we have an Environmental Protection and Management Act um, where, we're, where we're looking at um, establishing a Paris Agreement um, regulation. Um, we already have a, an environmental fund um, with a revolving fund program that looks at um, adaptation measures within the private sector. So basically de-risking um, assets through high concessional loans for climate resilience. Uh, but looking at when you have these regulations in place, we also want to mix in as well downscaled data. So we've connected with our adaptation plan and risk assessment and risk mapping. So we have an entire countrywide risk map. And then to incentivize, so for example, um, the having these secondary regulations apply to all buildings and land at, at risk of climate change, they can then go check the risk map, 
They can do their individual risk assessment and adaptation planning. And then by doing that, then you have um, access to our environmental fund for highly concessional loans. So making incentivizing the private sector, businesses and homes um, to engage in risk assessment and adaptation planning from the get-go um, through, through the use and leveraging of revolving funds um, under our environmental um, act. Uh, then information instruments, obviously very important for shaping norms and educating the masses and the population, um, which is going to, we're going to need a lot of that. Um, so the last thing I would say is that in addition to all of these different things, I think we do need to have countries taking the lead of inclusion of voluntary reporting on their progress towards achieving 21C in the context of their biannual transparency reports. Uh, and then hopefully in the next revision of that transparency framework, because we don't have currently a framework um, under the Paris Agreement, that we that we do build out um, the, what is needed to, to report that um, in the next cycle once we review the framework. So I'll stop there, Joe. Hope I didn't too, take too much time. Thank you, Mikhail. That's uh, that's all really, really interesting, especially the the point on climate related disclosures, because that's something that I've been thinking about a lot, uh, and the, the danger that stems from divestment rather than transitioning finance flows or climate proofing them, uh, which is really important from its perspective. We're going to move straight on to the global perspectives um, to the second panel. So I'm going to bounce the ball right back to you, Mikhail, to moderate that panel. Thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot for that, Joe. Um, so going straight into the second panel. Uh, so again, Mikai Robertson, uh, research associate with um, ODI, uh, and I have the honor of introducing the second panel on global perspectives uh, on challenges and opportunities for operationalizing Article 21C. First, we have um, Joseph, you've already introduced yourself, um, and so um, who oversees the work um, to um, draw together some of the insights from the country um, case studies, uh, and will present some of the initial findings from his analysis. Um, next, we have Mr. Roth from the World Benchmarking Alliance, uh, and he is the um, climate policy lead. Um, he is currently developing WBA's um, climate policy strategy and working to build multi-stakeholder coalitions to inform um, global policy making uh, around reaching the Paris goals. Prior to joining WBA, um, he worked on just transition indicators and other climate related um, topics at um, IISD. Uh, then we have uh, Valerio, um, who is our last panelist. Um, he is the senior manager at um, CPI, where he leads on the net zero finance, um, including CPI's net zero finance tracker and the development of um, finance-based Paris alignment methodologies. Uh, I'm sure you are all familiar with CPI's excellent um, open source data for tracking climate finance. So. Um, without further ado, over to you, Joe. Thanks, Mikai. Um, and yeah, I'll briefly present some analysis. I, we're, we are strapped for time, but we do really, uh, we're very keen to, to hold at least 15 minutes at the end for Q&A. And I see that there have been some questions coming in already. So please just continue using the Q&A function if you've got any questions. Um, so I'm going to talk a bit uh, more about um, some of the ways that we can bridge that gap between tracking progress on 2 and c at national level that we've just spoken about uh, and global level. 
Um, and one way of doing that is by identifying common challenges and opportunities that the authors came across. And so the authors in the previous panel have already been talking a bit about this, so it sort of made life a bit easier for me. Um, learning from those experiences uh, also helps ensure that whatever shared understanding we develop on 21C uh, is also practical and useful for countries themselves to implement. And that's, there's a very strong justice element uh, in this that I'll come back to later. Um, in the past couple of months, we've been trying to draw some of the lessons together from the case studies that have been completed so far uh, and come up with some practical recommendations going forward. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm delighted to present some, some initial findings from, from that working paper before it's published. Um, in that working paper, we've identified four cornerstones that we would hope uh, can guide this debate going forward. Um, so the first cornerstone is that uh, all the case studies revealed a great deal about um, some of the policies, tools and actions that are Paris aligned or misaligned. Um, but they also identified plenty of information gaps that made the assessment of some finance flows more difficult. And I believe all three panelists mentioned this uh, as well in their presentations for Germany, uh, Rwanda and, uh, and, and Antigua. Uh, so the, the gaps include, as David mentioned um, in his presentation, the lack of access to quantitative data, uh, especially for private finance flows, um, uh, as well as the common issue that, that June mentioned, which is this planning implementation gap. So where well-intended climate ambition is set out in policies and pledges, but no timeline is given for their implementation. Um, and this is not something that just affects private actors, it affects public ones as well. And there are plenty of examples of that in the case studies. Um, I think it's really useful going forward that the case studies and any assessments of finance flows continue to highlight those gaps um, in order to increase pressure uh, to address the causes of inaction, both on greater transparency over data uh, and also on trying to turn climate ambition into action. Uh, the second cornerstone um, which, which we've kind of come up with is that it's quite clear that we can't use a single one-dimensional standard to assess policy levers across the 194 signatories of the Paris Agreement. Uh, and so that's something that applies to the climate consistency of financial policy and regulation in particular. So thinking about that column, that column was analysed in a lot of detail in countries like Germany and Switzerland. Um, but was of, of limited, not, not completely useless, but of limited use in countries with uh, lesser developed financial markets, such as, such as Rwanda. Um, and a very good example of this that, that you know, Mikai has already talked about is TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures. Um, there is global momentum for central banks and financial supervisors to implement that regulation and mitigate climate related risks. Um, but financial supervisors in some emerging market economies, quite interestingly, have actually already gone a step beyond this to take a more interventionist approach to, to mitigating those risks. Uh, for instance, by subsidizing lending to, to green sectors or putting in quotas, uh, uh, for example. Um, and we know that, uh, or we also know from other research or the actions of uh, financial supervisors, that their, their mandates um, uh, that, that uh, they're bound by their mandates. And those mandates vary between countries, especially between emerging market countries and, and more developed ones. Um, so going forward, we need to take those differences into account when we assess what is climate consistent or not 
in, an, in a national uh, country context. Uh, third, um, we definitely need a better, this sounds quite obvious, but just to say it, we need a better understanding of voluntary or market-led climate action or inaction. So all case studies uh, struggled with, with private finance flows, and some of that uh, relates to, to the, the information gaps that, that were uh, identified earlier. Um, it also relates to the fact that in some contexts, mandatory policy and regulation is quite difficult to enforce. Uh, that might be because uh, the, the, the presence of strict rules, well, it basically leads to the, the presence of strict rules not reflecting the reality on the ground. And that's especially true of lower income settings or when it comes to transport of finance flows, which are very, very common. Um, but in these contexts, a better assessment of private or voluntary led climate action or inaction is needed, although it's often quite difficult because of the informa information gaps mentioned earlier. Um, and the case studies also revealed failings when it came to corporate ESG uh, policies, for instance, in Indonesia. Um, but I should also say that uh, they gave credit where credit is due. And there are cases where uh, voluntary action by banks and other financial institutions in the private sector um, uh, led, to, led to climate action, such as in Switzerland or Colombia. And then finally, the last sort of cornerstone is that the case studies revealed um, an enormous variety of unique and innovative ways of using fiscal measures to incentivize and disincentivize certain behavior, but also ways in which revenues generated from those mechanisms can be used to support climate action. So I was really glad that, uh, that June already mentioned Venerwa as Africa's first green fund. But for instance, in the case of Belize, uh, there's a tourist levy in place to disincentivize mass tourism, but the revenue generated from that tourist levy gets used uh, in a national trust fund that, that supports biodiversity and conservation in the country. And there are, there are hundreds, if not thousands of examples of very innovative, very context specific ways of, of spending, generating uh, revenue and spending it in ways that can support uh, two and C. And that also uh, yields enormous amounts of cross-country learning of best practices that can be gained from completing and sharing such examples. Uh, and I hope that we can continue uh, debate, to debate in this uh, spirit, uh, not just in this webinar, but uh, in the run-up to the official global stock take later this year. Thank you. I'll pass on to Joachim. Thank you very much, Joseph, and everyone for uh, very insightful presentations. Um, I'll just ask maybe if it's possible to show the slide deck I had prepared. Thank you very much for that. Um, so just a bit of an overview to um, just go to the next slide. So just a bit of an overview um, to the World Benchmarking Alliance. Uh, so we're an international um, nonprofit association, which uh, assesses how uh, companies and financial institutions are aligning with the SDGs in a broad way. Um, so we developed a seven system transformation and the financial system is one of these transformations. Um, and, we, and we look essentially at how, uh, yeah, how companies and financial institutions align with the, with the SDGs um, and all the data. So the way we do this is that we collect uh, public, publicly available data from uh, the companies and uh, financial institutions. Uh, so it's it, the, the benchmarking, pro that's what also differentiates us from other benchmarking organizations where there's maybe a more opaque methodology um, and the data is not publicly available. So it all comes from annual um, and sustainability reports or information that uh, the companies disclose. 
and go to the next slide. So for the financial system benchmark, um, the purpose here, it's, so the benchmark was released at COP, uh, COP27, and uh, the purpose was really to have a, an overarching tool and transparency um, on the type of um, climate finance and, and other um, uh, data that uh, 400 of the world's most influential financial institutions were uh, reporting. Um, so this includes uh, uh, climate-related data that it's directly relevant to Article 2.1c, which I'll touch on in a second, but it also includes other components uh, related to government, governance, and, and social factors, um, I'll, which I'll briefly mention, but uh, won't be the focus for, the, for today's discussion. Um, so essentially, these uh, financial institutions that I just mentioned, the way they were selected is those that had the most assets under management or revenues. And you can see here from the map that uh, we looked at uh, financial institutions across the board uh, in, in many different jurisdictions. Um, and, and overall, from all the institutions, this was quite significant in, um, in terms of uh, having 125 trillion in, in assets. So um, we looked at banks, uh, asset owners, asset managers, insurers, pension funds, but also uh, development banks and sovereign wealth funds. So it included both public and uh, private finance uh, actors. And so I'll move on to um, the next slide. So I won't go into the nitty gritty of all the methodology um, and, and how this was developed given the time constraints as well today. Um, but essentially what we did is we, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of um, standard setters out there or other um, organizations that have already sort of mapped how we can track different um, climate related finance data. Uh, so we wanted to use what's already existing to build our own methodology. So uh, we use, for example, um, more of the financial materiality uh, disclosures from the CFD, but also information um, uh, from Share Action and, and uh, um, CPI and others to help in defining our indicators and our assessment approach. And so I urge you also, and I'm happy to share that later, to, to have a look at our methodology after uh, this presentation and, and come back with any questions. Go on to the next slide. So you see here, there's essentially, um, as I mentioned, we're, we looked at these 400 financial institutions. Uh, the idea was to, to rank them based on different indicators and assessment areas, and then to, to then provide um, information that the public can use, but also sort of these institutions can compare themselves amongst their peers, um, and it provides a sort of incentive to perform better. Uh, so there is um, a governance assessment area, which is the, the highest weighting one. So uh, that is a bit more cross-cutting, but it includes factors like it, what is the impact management and strategy of the financial institution? Um, what type of uh, accountability and remuneration is there in place? And how is it linked to climate, climate as well and climate incentives in terms of remuneration? Uh, it's wider engagement policy. Um, and then there's also more uh, social uh, factors taken into account, more like human right grievances and other aspects. Uh, which I won't delve into too much today. Um, but the aspect that's most relevant for the discussion is specifically linking planetary boundaries. Um, so uh, yeah, I will go on to this into the next slide. So here into the slide, what you can see is that uh, there are essentially five key indicators we look at that are directly relevant to Article 2.1c. Um, again, these are, uh, well, these aren't the only ways obviously to assess 2.1c and how uh, financial stakeholders are aligning with 1.5. So it is not a comprehensive overview and it does not intend to be so, but this is a way for us to see some of the key areas where we think financial institutions uh, should be aligning their financial flows. Um, so this includes, for example, um, uh, financed emissions, financed emission targets. How does the financial institution engage with its clients and companies to ensure that they also have 
one, uh, they also have a strategy in place to uh, align with 1.5 and the transition plans. Um, how is the financial institutions providing finance and what type of finance is it providing to uh, climate solutions? And, and then finally, what is its approach to phasing out its finance for uh, fossil fuels? And within each of these indicators, the idea was to go more in depth uh, and to assess how uh, robust that commitment was uh, or whether it was you know, uh, more a box ticking exercise and it wasn't actually that meaningful. So for example, if we look at indicator uh, seven on financed emission targets, we really looked at more in detail, okay, the financial institution has a net zero target. Does it have um, an interim emission target that is um, you know, science approved? Does it have, does it, is it tracking progress over time to see how it's meeting its targets? on an annual basis. Um, so that's just one example. Um, but essentially what we wanted to look at is the level of disclosure so uh, that the financial institution is providing for each indicator and also how it's aligning, um, how it's aligning across its, its financing activities. So whether, for example, for um, the approach to fossil fuel sectors, whether it's aligning this across loans or also in terms of um, assets uh, or, or, or insurance or other financing instruments that it, that it may be uh, using. I'll be moving on to the to the next slide. So um, just to mention also that uh, we'll be releasing in this quarter an insights report, which will contain much more detailed climate related information. And this assessment was conducted in May. We also uh, we also um, did some conducted. We also uh, discussed with the financial institutions to, to to see how to engage with them based on the data we had. Uh, but this, this is obviously um, evolving data, so we will be having more detailed data um, specifically on the, the quantifying some of the financial flows, which at the moment we, we have not uh, fully done. But what we can see just at a broad level, I'll give a couple insights, keeping in mind the time here. First of all, we see that um, about a little less than 40% of the financial institutions have uh, net zero targets. But more worryingly, we see uh, that there's only 2 or 1% um, that have... Uh, uh, that, that, ha that have um, interim targets. So essentially going back to the high level expert group report that was released at COP, uh, there's a really a long way to go to make some of these commitments more meaningful. Um, and then just, just to mention that the, the, in terms of the transparency and the disclosures that came about uh, in the discussions for panelists earlier, uh, there's on we only see 4% of financial institutions disclosing the amount uh, and share they provide to climate solutions, and more importantly, specifying what those solutions are, because there's a big risk that uh, without specifying it, we're actually accounting in climate finance for uh, funding for gas or um, CCS or other solutions that are not uh, you know, uh, green finance aligned. So what do we mean by green finance, I think is a really important point when we were digging into this, this data. Um, and then we see that actually there's only 1% of the, the financial institutions that disclose the share of finance they provide to high emitting and fossil fuel sectors. Um, so I'm gonna go to the next slide and we're time. So I'm gonna try to speed things up a little bit. Uh, just one, one important thing we thought was interesting is that when we look at climate financial flows, I think it's important to not just think about the aggregate going uh, to clean energy to fossil fuels, but also think about how this links with the governance incentives in place. Um, so we also saw statistically uh, significant um, uh, correlations in terms of financial institutions that had board level sustainability oversight uh, performing better on some of these climate indicators compared to their peers. Um, yeah, and then maybe just the last insight here, uh, probably relating a bit more to Article 9 than Article 2.1c, but just to mention, we also saw a significant lack of transparency and disclosure on 
the amount of um, finance going to low-income countries where only 2% of financial institutions were disclosing this. So again, if we think of um, the finance for clean energy that is stagnating or that hasn't increased sufficiently um, in a number of emerging economies, uh, despite rising in, in 2022, that's also, I think, a really important point um, how to increase more transparency and disclosure on that. Next slide, and I'll just wrap up here because I think we're um, a bit short on time here. Um, so yeah, just to mention again that these are preliminary insights. They're focusing more here on uh, the transparency and the and the high level findings, but we'll have more climate related um, disaggregated data per type of financial institution, per development financial institution later in this quarter. So I think be happy to exchange more at that point. Um, and I think what we were trying to show here that is uh, what has been touched on by other panelists is the lack of a common global reporting framework uh, on how do you look at different finance related data, whether that's uh, finance emissions, the, the, the scope of the emissions you're looking at. Um, so there's been some efforts done on this with uh, the, NZ, the net zero data public utility, or I've heard about the ISSB and, and other ways of harmonizing this. But I think it's really important to take into account a, a whole sector perspective with a double materiality view, not just in terms of financial materiality. So how do we do that? And how do we um, yeah, make that message come across also in the GST, I think is a, is a really important point. Um, and also the last point I already mentioned, but on what do we mean by, by climate finance and ensuring we're not accounting for financial flows that are not 1.5 compatible. I will stop here um, and I will hand over to Valerio given uh, we're quite short on time here. Thanks, uh, Joachim. Um, I will cover some uh, general takeaways from uh, uh, our flagship works and say and uh, we'll mention here uh, also where we we mean to focus our efforts in the coming years uh, that efforts that can feed into the the, the process mentioned I, I'm mainly going to focus on the data uh, and accountability challenges that we uh, plan to face as you may know CPI has a decade-long uh, tradition of uh, uh, gathering data to track progress on uh, on climate uh, our most known effort is the, and it was mentioned before, also, the global landscape of uh, climate finance, where we track investment in uh, climate solution uh, at the project level and compare it with uh, the needs at the sectoral level for decarbonization. The, the report also plugs into UNFCCC biennial assessment and extend this data. Uh, uh, we recently released a report providing an overview of the last 10 years of climate finance data and the main takeaway is uh, uh, that the past decade obviously so growing momentum uh, with public and private uh, climate finance almost uh, doubled between 2011 and 2020 to reach 665 billion however despite the extent of uh, this effort to reaching climate objectives uh, will require climate investment to uh, increase at least seven times by the end of this decade as we need at least 4.5 3 trillions in annual climate investment uh, uh, flows by 2030. Uh, we also need that uh, other financial flows um, more broadly are aligned with uh, Paris Agreement objectives, with, uh, which often means halting climate harmful financing. However, we saw that the opposite is happening, the total fossil fuel subsidies in uh, more than 50 major countries alone were 40% higher than the total global investment in climate finance. Uh, between 2011 and 2020, and uh, this is quite alarming as fossil fuel subsidies are only a part of the overall funding in high emission, in high emitting uh, activities. We also observed that uh, uh, despite the push toward having the private sector taking the lead in investment in uh, uh, climate uh, solutions, uh, public sector is still a fundamental player and not only as a concession financier, 
as for today, uh, it shares 50% of climate investment with the private uh, sector. So despite the slow response on the ground by the private sector, we know that uh, there has been an incredible momentum over commitments from uh, uh, private institutions, particularly in OECD countries and even more in uh, Western Europe. Uh, in 2019, when uh, the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance was launched as a coalition that represented uh, less than 4 trillion of assets, and now G Funds represents over 130 trillion, which is a massive increase in participation. So, why this disconnect between commitments and the results on the ground? And one reason is the trade off uh, within coalitions between participation and uh, ambition, which have so far favored the former at the expenses of uh, the latter. For example, CPI's work um, we did on uh, private sector commitment tracking revealed that while the number of mitigation targets is, uh, is, is growing, key details including credible transition plans and ambitions are lacking. In, in addition, we also saw that fossil fuel exclusions and investment policies are primarily coal-related and a comprehensive shift away from fossil fuel investment is uh, still largely missing. Therefore, there is a need, of course, to increase the ambition, credibility, and accountability of commitments, as well as setting up a robust system in place to track progress and its impact in the real economy. And um, CPI is trying to operate on three levels to support this. The first one is on uh, uh, benchmarks. Um, CPI has been working on a set of principles for sustainable finance integrity, which are a framework against which uh, to measure sustainable finance progress across the uh, full financial sector. They're the foundation for more coordinated action across the financial system by providing a set of guardrails that say to, to deliver results and foster integrity. And the, the second example of work we are doing in, also on the tracking and standardization of uh, commitments and the responses, which is uh, transparent comparable and comprehensive. Some of the data already exists, uh, but it's scattered across many different sources and the initiative is also difficult to make sense of a variety type of actions and like investment targets, investment policies and so on. And CPI in this sense has been working on a way to address this demand with a, a work, uh, which is the Net Zero Finance Tracker, which works as a sort of a metadata set that sorts out and pulls all existing information from coalitions, the party research entities and consultancies and uses it to standardize and assess the level of different response uh, actions with the goal of making it available uh, in a single place. Information is categorized in three groups of action, which are proxies of increasing level of relevance and materiality. So we first look into commitments set at strategic level, which we call targets, uh, we, uh, but also action that are rolled out to implement these commitments, which we uh, call uh, integration. And then finally, we uh, look into how they ultimately translate into changes in the real economy at, and the physical uh, uh, world, which is what we call flows. In short, uh, the platform allows to see in a single snapshot how organizations are following on their commitments and their impact in the real economy, which is what eventually uh, all matters. Um, in June 2011, we published a beta version of this, focusing on the UK for the time being. And this year, we're working on a global version of the dashboard, focusing initially on GFANS institutions, which will allow for cross-country comparison, and hopefully will help policymakers and regulators understand where action is need needed and which jurisdictions are leading response. And the third and final one is uh, the real economy, so where, where we are getting engaged, more focused. Uh, of uh, most of the focus of discussions on 
gel economies on portfolio emissions, which we also plan to embed in the net zero finance tracker, but this only tells a part of the stories they describe emissions from physical assets that already exist and will continue to exist and emit even after uh, their sale and uh, divestment that this was also mentioned before. Uh, an important indicator that is cited as highly material by financial actors themselves is the level of investment in new climate solutions and high emission activities as a complementary metrics that can more accurately measure the impact on the real economy uh, as, uh, as such investment directly modifies emissions independently of who is going to purchase or sell these assets uh, later on. As CPI, we are already independently tracking direct investment in clean solutions. I mentioned uh, the numbers before from the global landscape of climate finance, and I've also successfully tracked uh, fossil fuel financing two years uh, ago. The next step will be to define an approach that links this investment, uh, which is tracked on the ground in the physical world with the rest of the financial system using uh, ownership as a tool to uh, execute this. So the metrics will be uh, particularly important in assessing the progress in the implementation of uh, transition plans, which often rely on investment in climate solutions as a tool to mitigate emission. Uh, so that's all I have uh, for an overview. Sorry for not supporting this with slides. <laughs> um, that perhaps would have helped to, to stick some uh, of the numbers, but thanks again for the opportunity and happy to provide more details also separately to those interested in uh, Animo. <laughs> No, but thank you, thank you, thank you very much, and and thank you to 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 both um, all, all panelists um, for their contribution. So I know we have five minutes left, which is is kind of fortunate, and we have two questions. So what I'll try and task um, is to to divide and conquer one minute each for um, a panelist um, answering certain questions. So um, if if um, Wookie, I'm sorry, um, would focus on the um, the first question on, I wonder if there are any countries that are looking for Article 21C in the context um, of trade, financial flows or export credits and what um, tracking systems exist, uh, as well as um, Valerio, if you could give your perspectives as well. So are there any sort of tracking systems for trade finance flows specifically each, uh, as well as um, if I can have, I'll try and do a quick stab at democratizing the greening, uh, but it would be really good to hear perspectives from June and then David especially in your case studies about um, the stakeholder engagement, such as governments and civil society engaging in those studies? And, and do you think there are benefits in them engaging um, in those studies as well? So, uh, so we'll have Mr. Roth first, then Valerio. Um, uh, I'll take a quick stab and then June and David in that order. So um, off to the races. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm not sure I can see um, the question. Is it is it in the Q and A or? Um, yeah, it's in the Q and A, and I'll quickly read it again. Um, so, so I wonder if there are any countries that are looking at two one C in the context of trade finance flows or export credits, and what tracking systems exist. Um, so over to you. It's a good question. I must admit, this isn't an area specifically I, uh, we've looked at with the financial system benchmark. I mean, we've looked at um, development finance institutions and um, other public act, public finance actors, but I, yeah, I'm not sure I, I would be able to, 
to answer that. My, my apologies. Um, I'm wondering if another panelist might be better equipped. No problem. So I'll hand over to Valerio. Over to you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ikai. I have to say that I also cannot see the questions. So if you could repeat the one that was addressed to me. Thank you so much. No, no problem. <laughs> so, um, so I wonder if there are any countries that are looking at 21C in the context of trade finance flows or export credits and what tracking systems um, exist? Uh, I think it was another question, to be honest. Uh, there was a second one. So, sorry? Mm, I think it was ahead. I think it was another one the question, but I can I can attempt to send, to, to answer to this. So uh, we are not uh, okay. CPI is uh, providing two levels of analysis in terms of uh, climate flows. So I mentioned the, the global landscape of climate finance, which provides these global overviews, and then we do uh, country country specific uh, uh, studies as well. Uh, so in a, uh, in the Usually the, the approach we, we follow slightly differ uh, when we move from the global overview, uh, where we rely mostly on, uh, on, on, on third-party data, for example, BNF as a source, IGEO Global, as well as reporting from, from NDBs, then when we move at individual country level, where we uh, often also look into uh, budget analysis, more specifically. Now, on the, the, the export credit, um, role. So we we uh, have been looking. We normally break down analysis of our investment flows, uh, not only by uh, the the destination. So in terms of technologies that are being deployed downstream, but also by the sources of financing and uh, uh, export credit agencies have been like some of the categories that we've been uh, uh, identifying uh, and and track independently when uh, describing identifying key key takeaways regarding. The, the performance of different investors in uh, uh, investor categories in, in deploying financing downstream. So uh, in particular, export agencies uh, emerged in one of the studies we published a couple of years ago where we did not only look into uh, climate uh, investments, so, but also looked into uh, fossil fossil fuel investments. So this was study, study was focused particularly on, on the uh, power sector and uh, in the, in, we did in the context of that study, we did a more in-depth analysis of the role of different, different financial actor groups and uh, 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 of, of all different actors it emerged that uh, yeah, uh, expocating agency were those that uh, uh, provided financing that was most misaligned uh, with uh, um, uh, with the alignment and decarbonization, decarbonization goals uh, in relation to the Paris Agreement. Uh, so yeah, we do provide this uh, this perspective, uh, and again, like uh, our source of data tends to be uh, relying on uh, physical assets, so it's not necessarily dependent on uh, uh, submission of data at, at the country level. We use common data sets, uh, which also helps the standardization and comparability uh, of data with one another. I hope this understood the question well and this answered. Correct. No, 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 most definitely. Yeah, and I appreciate that. I, I could appreciate it. it's a, a bit of a tough question. Um, so what I'll do is quickly go on to democratizing the greeting. Um, and, 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 and I think, you know, this is a really about getting the stakeholders who are there, um, who are most um, affected by any of this greening process involved in uh, the, the, the overall sort of alignments to 21C and, and so effective stakeholder engagement. 
so in line with environmental justice, access to justice, that type of that type of discussion, participation. Uh, so June, I'll hand it over to you to quickly kind of maybe discuss in the context of your case study um, about your thoughts on effective stakeholder engagement. Uh, then uh, lastly to David, and I'll hand it over. Um, okay, so you go, go ahead, June. All right. So thank you very much, Mikai. Um, so in terms of stakeholder engagement, I've just been trying to think about the experiences we had when we were, um, you know, getting the key informant interviewers for the case study. And um, I think one of the things that you need to do for effective stakeholder engagement, especially in the developing world, is first of all, you need to bring everyone together to explain the concepts to them, as opposed to approaching them individually. Because one thing that I realized, and I was even reading an article today, there's just simply lack of understanding on, on things like climate, uh, the flows, the, the term flows, the term financial alignment, and also trying to understand that this is a systemic change. So when they understand that, they understand the activities like mitigating climate change, mitigating activities and um, adaptation activities, they don't understand the systems that they're putting in place to, to align those financial flows. So in terms of stakeholder engagement, um, I think an approach that would have been useful for us and anyone else attempting to do this is to map out the stakeholders at first and then bring them all together, explain the concepts to them and then proceed to have the individual interview so that you can get richer information. That for me was something quite large. Um, and then in terms of um, how they are, I feel like stakeholders are very much working in silos at the moment. Um, I know this is repeated quite often, but even when you are doing interviews, this person who was talking about monetary policy was only focused on that, understandably so, but could not understand how perhaps it linked with fiscal policy or other measures that they were taking. And so then that's why that initial approach would be very helpful. Um, yeah, and just really sensitizing them and clarifying to them what 2.1c means. Because I feel like we are climate change experts in the room. Most people here, and the terminologies are very easy, but like you're, you're trying to align climate flows. So you're working with people in the energy sector, you're working with people in the finance sector. You've got to make it as simple as possible and and that should not be taken for granted so that people understand that these are systemic measures and not just simple activities. Yeah, so that's how I would approach the stakeholder engagement. Yeah, I think I can wait nicely on what June just said. Uh, I think uh, I would say the financial literacy is still uh, on many levels lacking. I mean, that can't be uh, even amongst one decision makers, but it's uh, especially if we then break it down to really citizen participation. Uh, I see that there's there's financial literacy lacking and and, um, and I said in the beginning that the German uh, banking sector is also quite uh, decentralized, which I think is, is good and has helped us, but there's, uh, there's a lack of understanding even within those local banks uh, of like the possibilities and necessities to to transition their portfolio and what they can offer in terms of other um, support uh, loans, etc., mortgages that that go more towards the, the green transition. So I think there's a lot of work still to be done on on expanding the financial literacy, green financial literacy especially. Uh, in terms of more on a on a higher level, as I said, we have the Sustainable Finance Advisory Council, where there's representation from different ones, but it's obviously also in a way politicized and, that, and it still depends on how these recommendations that come from the advisory council are actually implemented at what, at what level. Thank you. 
Great, thank you. I'll, I'll jump in there um, and just say a big thank you. Thank you to Mackay for moderating that second panel. And thank you to all our wonderful panelists uh, and to everyone who attended the event. Um, I've just got two closing reflections before we finish. Um, the first is that given, as Charlene outlined in the int introduction, that discussions around Article 2.1c are likely to ramp up this year. Um, and it's really important that we continue this open dialogue in the run-up uh, and as part of the two workshops on Article 2.1c later this year. Um, we need to keep in touch, we need to keep talking, and we need to keep sharing best practice and lessons learned, as we did in this webinar. Uh, and secondly, uh, the panelists also highlighted uh, a really important element that needs to be kept on the agenda for these discussions, which is that of climate justice. So we need to recognise that ownership that the countries have over operationalising Article 2.1c. We need to support countries to identify their own pathway, and we need to figure out, um, we need to let them figure out how to get there. Um, but at the same time as respecting that, uh, we also need to seek international learning and meaningful progress towards reaching the goals of the Paris Agreement. Until then, um, thank you again for joining this discussion and goodbye. Thank you, everyone.